How can we understand Putin and his reasons for sending Russia to war? This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone, I am Matt Parker. Today's episode is going to be more of a history lesson on Ukraine and the country's background that that has led it to the current circumstances it now finds itself in. We're going to be discussing who is Vladimir Putin trying to understand his rationale that has led him to uh, sending his troops into Ukraine. And finally, we're going to discuss what in fact leads countries to war. What are those underlying reasons that drives man to kill other men for whether it's territory, ego, economic gain, etc. So again, this is not why or how the current situation is going in Ukraine, not a tactical kind of brief of how Ukraine's military is handling the situation. There are so many news resources with reporters on the ground doing a far better job than I ever could. What I want to provide you is something you might not hear on one of the main networks that you're watching this war unfold on. I want to try to explain just to Americans generally how many experts say Russians think so that we can have a better understanding of why would you send in 2022 uh, Russians into Ukraine unprovoked? Because I think it's important that we understand how nation states operate, how they think about things like war. Because so many few people in, in, for example, the United States ever serve in the military, so they might not have given warfare a great deal of thought until it's something like this on the world stage where everyone's watching. So that is the intent of tonight's episode, to give you an understanding of Ukraine's history, Putin's thinking and rationale, and generally what leads man to war. Left with that, let me take a quick ad break, and then we'll get to work. All right, welcome back, everyone. Let's start with a very brief history lesson on Ukraine. I'm hoping this kind of illustrates the thinking of the Ukrainian people, their attitude. If you've been watching the news, they've been rather resilient, pushing back against Russian forces. And I think if we look at their history, we might have a better understanding why. I'm only going to go back until World War II, so it's not that many decades ago. According to uh, BBC, I'm going to give you a timeline here. 1939, Western Ukraine is annexed by the Soviet Union, under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. In 1941, Ukraine suffers terrible wartime devastation as Nazis occupy the country until 1944. More than 5 million Ukrainians die fighting Nazi Germany. 5 million. Most of Ukraine's 1.5 million Jews are killed by the Nazis. Now, in 1944, Stalin deports 200,000 Crimean Tatars to Siberia. Crimea, again, is that peninsula, the southern part of Ukraine. And Central Asia following false accusations of collaboration with Nazi Germany. So Stalin said these Ukrainians collaborated with the Nazis. No, they did not. 1944, 10 years later, in a surprise move, the Soviet leader then, Nikita Khrushchev, he transfers the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine. And this is wrapping up as the armed resistance to Soviet rule had finally ended with the last commander of a Ukrainian insurgent army. Moving into the 1960s, there was an increase in covert opposition to Soviet rule, leading to a repression of uh, dissidents all the way up until 1972. 
So jump in here. The Ukrainians have for quite some time pushed back against communism and the rule from Moscow. 1986, last point, uh, a reactor, the Chernobyl nuclear power station explodes. I'm sure you've all heard of Chernobyl. It sends a radioactive plume across Europe. Desperate efforts are made to contain the damaged reactor within a, a huge concrete cover. Now, we're going to stop right there up until in 1990. That's where we're going to move into because this is right as the Soviet Union begins collapsing and we see these former Soviet states beginning to break off and gain their independence. So this is really a, a critical time in a post-Soviet Union rule. So after 1990, uh, according to Mira Patel, Patel, he's writing for the Indian Express, Ukraine's first and perhaps least known popular uprising was the Granite Revolution, and that took under place in, in October 1990. And you'll see a number of revolutions after this where Ukraine starts to pull further and further away from Russian rule. So at the time, Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. Despite progress under Gorbachev, that's the Soviet Union's uh, ruler at the time, the stain of the Cold War ran deep, and the citizens of Ukraine were just clamoring for change. Uh, one Ukrainian actually declared, it is better to die than to live in the Soviet Union. So the protesters at the Granite Revolution made five demands, and that included Ukraine depose its head of state and that it vote in favor of independence from the Soviet Union. And Moscow was really at a loss of how to respond. Eventually, the demands were met, and in 1991, Ukraine held a referendum for independence with 90% of the electorate voting in its favor. 90% of Ukrainians voted for independence in 1991. So before 1990, you know, Ukraine had existed as an independent nation only really a handful of times. Most recently, for a few years after World War I, and before that, a brief period in the 1600s. So the country has been under either a total or partial Russian rule for most of its history. And consequently, a large number of Ukrainians kind of felt a kinship with Russia. And uh, many of them spoke Russian. While... A lot of people looked at Moscow fondly with its kind of shared sense of culture and heritage. Others saw it as an oppressor that aimed to subjugate Ukraine. That disconnect would really haunt Kyiv for decades to come, Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. Since it gained independence from the Soviet Union, Ukraine has played Russia and the West against each other with alternating governments leaning one way or another. So Ukrainian governments leaning towards Moscow or another leaning towards the West. Now, that's while ensuring to not really antagonize either side. So this moves us to the Orange Revolution. It was a series of protests and political events that took place in Ukraine before November 2004 and January. I'm sorry, between November 2004 and January 2005. So about three months. The protests were prompted by several reports from foreign and domestic election monitors alleging that the country's 2004 presidential election runoff was actually rigged. So Putin saw there's some changes happening in Ukraine. And more than anything, he feared that similar movements would take place in Russia. His focus thereafter was just to crack down on the rights of speech and association. Ukraine, however, remained ostensibly democratic and increasingly independent from Moscow, with its third revolution coming nearly just a decade after the second, which is the Maiden Revolution. Now, the Maiden Revolution, just like the two past revolutions, the Euromaiden protests were born out of a tug-of-war between Russia and the West over Ukraine. 
In 2010, uh, Yanukovych defeated Yushchenko and assumed the position of prime minister. Now, after coveting NATO partnership under Yushchenko, under Yanukovych, the pendulum of Ukrainian allyship swung back towards Russia. In late November 2013, the government of Kiev announced that it would suspend plans with the association union with the European Union, choosing instead to form closer ties to Moscow. So protesters, once again, flocked to Independence Square, but unlike previous revolutions, which had been entirely bloodless, the maiden revolution was to end in tragedy. Three months after protests began, security forces mounted against demonstrators, eventually killing approximately 100 demonstrators in that process. Now, many government's reforms have been implemented and saved Ukraine billions of dollars every year. Even in corruption, still remains rampant in certain areas. Now, meanwhile, Ukraine has held increased military cooperation with NATO and spent billions on fixing its armed forces so that one day it can join the alliance. Trade with Russia has also declined with supply chains rerouted through Europe. An economy that's not wholly dependent on Russia, along with just better military capabilities and closer relations with NATO, will be crucial advantages for Ukraine in the months to come. Now, most significantly, the attitudes of Ukrainians have changed considerably since the revolution. Now, polls after polls indicate that Ukrainians are more patriotic than ever before and increasingly apprehensive and hostile towards Moscow. A recent Kiev Institute of Sociology poll found that over 50% of Ukrainians would resist Russian aggression, either by taking up arms or by participating in civil disobedience. I think with any local or most recent news reports, we can certainly see that in the recent days as they unfolded, Ukrainians pushing back against Russian invasion. Now, prior to 2014, those numbers, those type of poll numbers, would have been considered just optimistic folly. Despite the turbulence of the last decade, Ukraine has made significant improvements to its governments, military capabilities, diplomatic relations, and economy. Now, this shift that's been brought on by the decades of revolutions could determine Ukraine's fortunes in what can now definitely be called its war against Russia. So, there's the history of Ukraine, at least since 1939. I hope that context can provide you, okay, these are the Ukrainian people. This is where they came from. This is where they're moving to. Now, since they've broken off as an independent state, they certainly have tried to implement certain political goals, uh, attacking things like corruption and a more free press. It's hardly perfect. Let me outline kind of where they're at currently with some of these things. According to uh, Darla Kalinuk, a writing for Foreign Policy, Ukraine's corruption-related problems go back to the fall of the Soviet Union, 1991, when the state-planned economy collapsed State enterprises went bankrupt, and they were privatized on the term of, you know, first come, first serve. Uh, and that was a lawlessness and chaotic process. So whenever a state-owned organization went bankrupt and then was basically privatized for anyone to come and get it, as, as that process came about, whether it's a, a, a state-ran energy company and it goes bankrupt and it's left for whoever wants it. You can imagine the process of people trying to scoop up those assets and potential opportunity to, uh, to make money. So this chaos, this lawlessness, after the process and the fall of the Soviet Union, it gave birth to the oligarchy, which remains a roadblock to Ukraine's progress. 
Since 2014, Ukrainian civil society groups, governmental reformers, and international partners have been crafting the country's anti-corruption architecture. Experts advocated for the adoption of a host of laws and then monitored their implementation and sustainability. And as a matter of fact, as I understand it, uh, some of the issues with Ukraine joining NATO currently that are being stated, at least by Germany and France more than others, are in fact their, their issues with corruption. Again, according to a GAN Integrity, this is a company that just specializes in legal and compliance issues that maintains kind of corruption numbers for countries around the world. Ukraine's judicial system is undermined by the executive branch and suffers from widespread corruption and nepotism. Businesses report that irregular payments and bribes in exchange for favorable judgments are common. Three out of five Ukrainians consider judges to be corrupt. More than half the Ukrainians consider the police to be corrupt. The police have often been able to act with impunity. Now, Ukraine's constitution also provides freedom of the press. But in practice, journalists face several restrictions on their work. Journalists occasionally face violence and harassment. But the situation has considerably improved since the Euromater revolution. Self-censorship remains widespread. And a new law that requires journalists to report on government corruption to file public declarations of their assets, which is just an attempt to deter journalists. And last point on Ukraine's, at least media and news reporting, is uh, the Ukrainian media, at least today, it's mostly owned by the country's major oligarchs. So the main Ukrainian TV channels, which inevitably kind of reflect the individual interests of their owners, you know, corruption lack of financial transparency, uh, the power games affect this picture even more. Now, from what sectors of the press and online media struggle to really detach themselves, offering kind of a wider choice just thanks to the freedom of the net, during 2019, at least, an institute of mass media reported 243 cases of violations of freedom of speech in Ukraine, including 172 related to physical assaults of journalists. The main forms of violation are obstruction of journalistic activity, threats, beatings, refusal of access to information, or cyber attacks and legal pressure. So I lie all these issues that Ukrainian, the Ukraine has faced since the fall of Soviet Union to, to point out the process of becoming a harmonious democracy. It's not a short one or easy for that matter, especially as I laid out earlier, Ukraine has really never been an independent state by itself, only just a couple of times. It's mostly been either partial or fully controlled by Russia. So in the last 30 some odd years, they are an independent state and they're just kind of making their way into this Western style democracy. So I just want to point that out. All right. With the history of Ukraine outlined for us, Let's turn over to Vladimir Putin. Everyone's asking or trying to understand, it's 2022. Why is Vladimir Putin sending Russian troops into Ukraine unprovoked? We've heard his rationale on the issue. If you've heard his reports, we'll touch on it here in a moment. But why would he send his own soldiers to die for a country that hasn't attacked him, isn't a threat to attack him? Let's try to understand his thinking. We'll do our best to do so. And I want to give you some things that Putin has made clear, uh, some commentators and Russian experts as they evaluate Vladimir Putin. We're also going to discuss the Russian empire and the idea of empire as well as Putin's legacy 
and how he sees it moving forward. Now, in July of last year, uh, the Russian president spelled out his views. He wrote an op-ed, and it reiterated his long-held belief that the Russian empire is far from dead, and that the history is the ultimate determinant of what is and what is not a part of Russia. He wrote, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are all descendants of ancient Rus, which is the largest state in Europe. Now, and this is a period that goes back to uh, the Vikings' times. That's what he's referring to. Uh, according to Tara Asanenshine, she's an opinion contributor writing for The Hill, she writes that Putin makes clear his view that Ukraine and its neighbors are actually culturally bound to Moscow. Quote, Slavic and other tribes across this vast territory, from Lagoda, Novgorod, Pskov, and Kiev, and Chernigov, were bound together by one language, which we now refer to as Old Russian, economic ties, the rule of the princess of the Rurik dynasty, and after the baptism of Rus, the Orthodox faith. The spiritual choice made by St. Vladimir, who was both Prince of Novgorod and Grand Prince of Kiev, still largely determines our affinity today. This is Putin's writing. So with that backdrop, it seems highly unlikely that Putin will budge, and even more unlikely that NATO will accept Putin's demands, which are tough to meet, given his insistence on no nuclear weapons, no military exercises or hardware, or any NATO defense activity in Ukraine. Now, one thing is clear, Vladimir Putin, by his own admission, wants to remain a power broker in the world. And his own words remind us that he rarely backs down. Now, a comments have been made of how Putin actually communicates with the United States and the West, just broadly speaking, how he thinks we under, how he, how he believes we think and operate. Uh, according to Anna Newby for the Brookings Institute, Putin doesn't really know how to talk to the West. And the West doesn't know how to listen or talk to him. This level of multi-incomprehension that is that the Hill argues, it's dangerous. And this is the point to interject of why I want to talk about this subject for this episode in particular. How can Americans understand Russian thinking? Newby writes that what the West tends to miss amidst Putin's alpha male rhetoric is that he wants security for Russia, plain and simple. He wants to define and defend what he sees as Russia's vital interest and sees the United States as its foremost threat. And a fact that American leaders find hard to understand in a post-Cold War era. And he perceives Western efforts to promote democracy and liberal markets. He sees that as encroachment, exhibiting paranoia that Trojan horses and fifth columnists are being impl implanted in Russia in order to undermine it. Now, at the end of the day, Putin's view of the world, it's a carryover from the Soviet era. You know, in short, kind of that might still makes right, if you've heard the familiar, that phrase. And in the chess game of just global affairs, it's still played out fundamentally on just literal battlefields. That's still happening. And the trouble for Putin is that the Russia's resources in conventional military and economic terms are still inferior to those of the United States and the West. So Putin sees himself in an asymmetric struggle with the United States, something we've talked about before in other episodes. And this was prompting him to try to be innovative, you know, catch the West off guard and kind of fight dirty. You know, the paradox that Newby concludes with is that Putin 
doesn't want out of the international community. Instead, Putin wants a seat at the table with the West, specifically the United States, to make deals on equal, at least in his view, on equal footing. And that's how Vladimir Putin perceives the world in a few words. That's how he's approaching this fight in Ukraine. He sees this as a, a, a just mission for land that Russia should own anyways. So let's understand this. Let's try to understand Russian identity if we can. Uh, I want to highlight a book uh, called Imagine Communities, Reflections on the Origin and Spread of Nationalism. It's written by a political scientist, uh, Benedict Anderson. And Anderson highlights the emotional aspect of nationalism and how it plays a crucial role in identity politics. He argued that feelings such as nostalgia help individuals reimagine and construct their national identity. In Russia, for example, more than 60% of the population was born before the Soviet Union collapsed. Their birthplace is still written USSR in their passports. So nostalgia for the Soviet Union remains an essential component for some people to interpret their Russian identity. Vladimir Putin's a great example of this. In an opinion piece in the Moscow Times, Andrei Kolesnikov, of an independent think tank, the, the Carnegie Moscow Center, he said that the majority of Russia needs a set of values that are crucial to its own survival and that these values will make Russia great again. To provoke such emotions, you know, targeting a, con- a common enemy, it's a very pragmatic approach. And as Galishnikov puts it, the people of an abstract concept, you know, the people, it's just an abstract concept to discuss. But the enemy of the people, that's entirely concrete. It's negative foundation, such as the hatred of the enemy and the besieged fortress mentality. That is a unifying concept. That's why so many leaders use it to get their people behind going to war. This aggressive attitude toward a hostile outside world has essentially replaced that Marxism-Leninism as something for Russians to rally around, to get behind. And that's what Putin has recognized. Rather than using Marxism-Leninism as those that center that foundation to get the Russian people excited about what he's doing. He's using a hostile outside world that wants to put Russia underneath its thumb to get the Russians to rally around his cause in Ukraine. And this leads us to what, in fact, does Putin want for himself in terms of his legacy? How does he want to be viewed in terms of Russian history? Now, the Russian experts and former U.S. officials increasingly question Putin's stability, and that's especially as he surrounds himself with like-minded advisors and yes-men who encourage his ambitions to rewrite history. According to Nina Khrushcheva, an international affairs professor at the New School in New York, she writes that Putin believes that in historical terms, as in Peter the Great and so on, leaders in Russia, blood will be forgotten and his legacy as the uniter of the Russian lands, no matter the cost, will remain. And she said the Russian leader appears to have lost all grip on reality, more so than I was willing to admit only yesterday, she added. And I didn't think he was suicidal, but he clearly is, and he's taking the world and us with him. She described Putin as a ruthless megalomaniac with a giant imperialist agenda, akin to Stalin and Mao, you know, previous uh, communist leaders. Now, personally, speaking for myself, I argue that while Putin is carrying out truly evil actions, 
He is a rational actor. You can do both things simultaneously. Be rational and do evil things. Based upon what Putin knows about the West, our focus on just self-absorbed parochial political objectives, Putin wants to expand his territory. And he wants to go down a history of one of Russia's great leaders. He sees this as an opportunity, this time in history, in his moment based upon the political leadership in the West, as this is his chance to do that, to submit that legacy. And based upon his goals and just an assessment of the international political landscape, in my view, his actions and timing are rational. Now, to point out um, how Putin views himself for the future, I wanted to share a comment from Mark Galotti, a director of Mayak Intelligence, also a professor of the University College of London. He's an expert on Russian security affairs. And Galotti writes that a final point is we know that Putin is obsessed with his historical legacy. History, it's one of the few things that Putin reads. And then when he meets historians, he asks them, how are they going to write about me in 100 years' time? That's what Putin asks. And which, first of all, with a that's a deeply uncomfortable question to be asked by the despots of your country, a man who has people poisoned or put in prison. But secondly, it really gives us a sense of where Putin's head is at. Galote points out that from his point of view, you know, Putin is 69 years old. He can rule for some years to come politically, but he's probably getting old and he's getting tired. It's fairly obvious that he is tired and bored with much of the job. The last thing he wants is for his legacy in the history books is to be the guy who lost Ukraine. You know, the guy who rolled over and let NATO and the West have their way. So Galoti thinks that this is about him feeling this is, I I wouldn't say his last chance, but one of the last chances to stand up for Russia and make sure that Russia asserts its real place in the world, forces the West to acknowledge that. And in the process, that's what gets Putin into the history books. And he can kind of write his chapter rather than just a paragraph. So if this is, in fact, our assessment of Vladimir Putin and how he sees this part of the Eastern Europe that, in fact, belongs to, to Russia and how he sees the empire and Putin's legacy in the history books, I want to share what leads countries to war. Like, what are the reasons that drive Leaders to send their young men and women to combat, to die. For what purpose? What drives this thing? At a thesis and an analysis that was written by a gentleman, Kyle Amonson, uh, titled Causes of War, a theory analysis. He, he describes what it is about human nature that drives people to war. And this is actually a great way to start uh, highlighting a quote by a Russian writer, Leo Tolstoy, if you've ever heard of that gentleman, uh, wrote famous novels like War and Peace, for example. And in 1869, Tolstoy was quoted that all history, all historians agree that states express their conflicts in war and that as a direct result of greater or lesser success in war, the political strength of states and nations increases or decreases. He's pointing out that when states can't agree and they, they express their conflict in war and based upon who wins or loses, their political strength is either increased or it's decreased. Now, Amundsen writes that war and conflict has been a much constant in human history 
as humans. He quotes Kenneth Waltz that there is no peace in a condition of anarchy. Let's break that down. There will always be a form of anarchy as long as human nature is a variable in our complex domestic and international systems. He's stating that the human nature is, in fact, uh, has anarchy. And where there is anarchy, there can be no peace. So as humans interact with each other, have being you know chaotic, there will always be war that follows. So in order to understand the causal factors of war, we have to define what war is and then reverse engineer how and why these parties escalated their relations to a violent level of conflict. War is organized violence among groups. It changes with historical and social context, obviously. And in the minds of those who wage it, it is fought for some purpose, uh, according to some strategy or plan. War may seem simple to define, yet encompasses a variety of conflicts that, with many types and forms of war displayed throughout history and modern times. War is a creation of human nature. The psychological variables, uh, feelings, and the behavioral traits of humankind are just a few of the wide-range variables that comprise what is the basic human experience. One common trait to all humans in any society is our flaws and the inherent differences established among society that have developed our cultural norms throughout history. While humans are not hardwired for war and destruction, war is a byproduct of envy, selfishness, and self-preservation. Kenneth Waltz stated in his analysis of his book, Man, the State, and War, that all other causes are secondary, meaning that all other causes of war outside of envy, selfishness, self-preservation, those are secondary things. It is, in fact, human nature, the, the, the flaws that we have that drives men to fighting other men and states fighting other states. And again, highlighting Waltz in his book, men live in states, so states exist in a world of states. He's explaining that states, you know, nation states, countries, they mimic human nature. And the international community subsequently mimics states. So there are two philosophical types of people evaluating international relations. You have your realists and you have your liberals. Realists believe... No one can be trusted to protect your state but yourself. Security can only be guaranteed through self-help, and regardless of a state's personal goals, the one common interest is survival. Liberal theorists believe that because of the inherent flaws in human nature that humans project onto states, that states will become less and less relevant, resulting in the increased influence of institutions and conflict. These theories kind of emphasize the positive consequences of globalization and creating deepening interdependence and spreading prosperity, thereby reinforcing global stability. So based upon this assessment and analysis, they're arguing that because mankind is inherently flawed, it will always fight wars against each other. And man has organized itself in states, and therefore states mirror the actions and those flaws of the men that live in them. And the last concept is that, in fact, what are the manifestations of conflict? 
you know, ex, uh, Amundsen writes that accepting that humans' nature, its inherent requirement for safety, it's projected onto the state, meaning that you and I just as we want to feel safe, we project that onto our government leaders. So that driving security competition, it happens through weapon development, preemptive action, or and power balancing, or to ensure a state's ideological continuance. We can further evaluate the manifestations of this friction. However, the secondary motives are typically very different uh, than the primary pursuit of security. So historically, war has revolved around either a society or a people group attempting to apply their beliefs to a fellow society, uh, economic or territorial gain, and, and to obtain independence. These are mostly reasons why war happens. And those are broad reasons, and generally most conflicts kind of fall into one of those categories. So to sum up this analysis, states engage in war to satisfy their human need for safety and security. This allows states to establish stable societies where they can live in status quo with their ideology, their religion, their culture of choice. The challenge in addressing this human nature circles us right back to the inherent need for safety. And until individuals, you and I, until we can be reasonably assured that our safety and security without the use of violence, we will continue to escalate conflict into war. We covered quite a few things this evening. The history of Ukraine. It's been ruled by Russia for centuries, more or less, and only in the last 30 years has it been working itself to a Western-style democracy. We discussed Vladimir Putin, trying to understand his thinking about Eastern Europe and these former Soviet Union states, how he views the Russian Empire, and more importantly, how he sees himself going down in Russia's history books. And lastly, we talked about what it is that leads states to fighting once against one another. What are those inherent human flaws and needs that we have that drive us to competition and to conflict? I'm not going to close out with any courses of action or anything like that. I hoped that this episode would put in your mind in the next weeks or months or however long the Ukrainian-Russian conflict goes on of how it all kind of started in terms of ideology and culture and historic backgrounds that drove us to this moment of this random country that many of you might not have really been familiar with, the how did it break out into war all of a sudden. I wanted to close out with so many people have said, you know, we're sending our prayers to Ukraine, which is terrific and fantastic. But we want to do more, which I think is equally wonderful. I have, over the course of just my experiences, met many people in the nonprofit world and in NGOs operating abroad. I wanted to think about if we were to donate or to send money, who, who would we do it through? You may have felt the same, whether it's through your church or another organization. I did want to put one group on your radar who I'll at least put my name behind for this effort of helping Ukrainians deal with this war right now. So if you were to, felt convicted and you wanted to donate money to Ukrainians, I wanted to share with you this group. Its name is A Spirit of America. It's a nonprofit, American-based nonprofit. And it's working closely with the U.S. military and State Department and it's in the personnel in Poland to meet the urgent needs of Ukraine's armed forces on the front lines. They're providing medical supplies, 
first aid kits, uh, medical equipment for Ukrainian soldiers and field medical personnel. Uh, they're expecting to provide emergency communications gear. Uh, they're also working with U.S. Special Operation Forces to provide emergency humanitarian assistance to Ukrainian refugees who have escaped uh, to safety in Poland. Additionally, Spirit of America has been working alongside the U.S. military and U.S. embassy to support Ukraine's independence from Russian aggression since 2015. Uh, they know the landscape well, and this would be the one group, if you were looking for some way to donate, uh, that I would kind of put that on your um, on your list to look at. I'll put the link to their website in the, uh, the notes below the episode today. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope the Ukrainian people can find a way to continue through this struggle and that, the, in fact, the Russians uh, merely give up and go away. I don't think it's going to be that simple or that clean. I think it's going to be quite ugly and violent and brutal. However, uh, the early days of this conflict, I, at least in my view, I am very impressed with Ukrainian resiliency, their pride uh, for their country, for their people, their families, and their willingness to, to fight a brutal thug um, on their land. So I hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.